This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome into another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast, Rhode Island's podcast of record. Bill Bartholomew here with you as always every Tuesday and Thursday and whenever breaking news happens. Today, welcoming in for her very first appearance here on the pod, Helena Bonanno Folks, Democratic candidate for governor here in Rhode Island. This is a, you know, a fast-paced 25 minutes or so, and I look forward to continuing the conversation with Helena folks down the line, as well as all the candidates for governor. I mean, that's something that we've built as our bread and butter here on B-Town, as all of you know. Well, maybe not all of you know, because some of you may be joining for the very first time here on the Bartholomew Town podcast, but in general, we go deep. We try to go as deep as we can on issues, on humans, on breaking news of the moment, whatever it is. So there's a lot more to flesh out, in other words, when it comes to candidates for governor. Good thing it's only February and we have a lot of time to do this. Um, but I think we get a nice picture of what Helena Folks's vision for Rhode Island, um, at least on a baseline level, consists of. And I think an understanding of the executive leadership and management approach that she would take to the governor's office if she were to be elected this coming November. Remember, you can support the independent journalism, entertainment, opinion, and analysis that B-Town provides by becoming a B-Town insider. Simply head to patreon.com slash Town or click the support link wherever you're listening right now. For as little as $3 per month, you'll be able to help sustain this independent program. That's patreon.com slash Town. Okay, let's get right to it today with Democratic candidate for governor, Helena Bonanno Folks, here on B-Town. I think a lot of people are probably wondering, even inside baseball people, inside politics, but certainly on a statewide general audience, who you are and what your background is and why you decided to run for governor. I know it's the most surface level question, but I think it's where we got to start. So yeah. first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. But Thanks so much for having me, Bill. Really appreciate it. So I am a lifelong Rhode Islander. My great grandparents are Rhode Islanders to the core, so from Westerly to Providence, but I'm the oldest of five. I grew up in Providence and I um, love my family. I would say that's the first and foremost about me, but my my Rhode Island story is probably that uh, after growing up here and going away for school, I came back and I started working in one socket at CVS right out of school. And I had a pretty ordinary job. My first job, actually, I was responsible for laying out the Christmas um, goods in the stores to make sure they could all fit. And so it was um, over 25 years, I had almost every job you could have at CBS. I just loved it. I, I kept growing. We kept growing. And uh, along the way, I had four kids really quickly. So I had four kids in four and a half years, uh, twins in the middle. And, um, and, and when my youngest was just one, I got cancer. So one of the reasons that I feel a strong sense of conviction about this race is I know I was really lucky when, when I had that experience in my life, I had health insurance, I had paid time off. And these are things that a lot of Rhode Islanders don't have. Um, but along the way in my CBS career, I really got to be uh, an innovator, an entrepreneur in a big company, which I loved. I loved the fact that we could do big, bold things. One of the things I led that I'm most proud of was the decision we made to get out of the cigarette business. So this was in 2014. We were at the time doing $2 billion a year in cigarette sales. So it's very hard to do as a public company. But I think it was a good example of courage, 
a team effort. I, I, I got to play the leadership role, but so many people were involved, obviously, to make it happen. And I think it showed us you can do really hard things. And it gave people a sense of pride on a very personal level. It was a very proud moment for me because I had lost my own mother to lung cancer five years before that. And uh, in this country, 500,000 people a year die from lung-related illnesses. So we had so many people inside the company who were proud of it. We also started hiring more great purpose-driven young people to come work at CBS. Um, so anyway, that whole thing taught me that you can do hard things if you pull the right people together and think creatively. And I think in many ways, that's what this government needs. I mean, I, I'm, I'm in this race because I, I'm really upset about what's been happening for the last couple of years. And I'm really concerned about the impact COVID's had, particularly on women uh, who have not gotten back into the workforce the way they should and people of color. And so I want to make sure that we can get things done. You know, I'm, I'm kind of tired of politicians who talk big games, but don't actually produce results. Because what I had to do in my career was I, I got rewarded for results that I produced, not just for saying good things. And when I look around at what's happening, whether it's the education system, issues around affordability, or this economy, I hear a lot of politicians saying a lot of great things, but not actually doing much. So that's really what motivates me. I really want to be able to come to the office every day, serve Rhode Islanders in a way that they've never been served and really get things done for everyone. Well, there's a lot in there I'd like to touch on. But first, I guess your vision for Rhode Island. Look, we're in a moment right now. There's no question that whether it's the blue economy that has become, uh, some people use it as a talking point, but frankly, it's always been there even before this land was known as Rhode Island. I mean, it certainly has served this region in so many different ways. But technology and innovation is at, is at a moment here where we're seeing satellite cities like a Providence, at Providence or Providence's relationship to New York or Boston or even in the global community be a major factor. At the same time, there are micro entities on Broad Street just down the street from me that are also struggling. So I guess your vision for Rhode Island, what is it and how does it marry both those big goals of being a global power in certain sectors, but then also the day-to-day -day lives of businesses and just everyday Rhode Islanders? I think a lot of people see a disconnect. Oh, great. So we have wind turbines. How does that impact me? Great. We have Smart Bay. How does that impact me? Put that together if you could. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I, I think you're hitting on something that's really important. Um, I think the best way to lift people up and give them better lives is to create a great economy. And I think a great economy starts with a phenomenal education system. And I think we have really missed the mark in the last 20 years. I'll come back to businesses, but but I do think that education is a core component of having a thriving economy. And when you look at our state, where only 33% of our kids are passing their English scores and only 20% in math, we're, we, we have a moral responsibility to those kids, but we also have an economic responsibility because we're not graduating kids who can thrive. And so, you know, we'll come back to education, I'm sure, but I'm really passionate about that as part of this. And then when you go to the economy, which are very much connected, you know, I think there's two things to think about. First of all, for existing businesses that are here, there's a lot more we can do to help them thrive. 
And I think that comes in many, many different forms. But to give you a few examples, uh, look, we're only one of a dozen states in the country that taxed the PPP loans. And so I talk to business leaders all across the state all the time. And they say to me, you know, I took those loans so I could keep people employed. And I didn't plan to be taxed on that. And, you know, it sends a climate issue to them. And they say to themselves, "Ah, there might be easier places for me to do business. It feels like I'm always fighting. Uh, I, I, I talk to restaurant owners who feel that way. And And then I think there are a lot more ways that we could give people access, existing businesses, access to services that, quite frankly, more sophisticated companies get access to. But the smaller businesses, whether they're women or minority owned, aren't getting access to. Just show me how I access capital, how I access services. And so one of the things I think I could really do is be someone who pulls together all the community organizations that are trying to serve small businesses, but are disconnected themselves and not necessarily getting access to what needs to happen. So, you know, the first plank of of driving the good economy is making sure that the businesses who are here really get served and access to, to programs that they should. But also we need to attract new businesses and we need to be setting ourselves up so that people look at Rhode Island as a place they want to come so they can thrive. And to your point, you know, blue economy, taking advantage of, of wind is, is one very good example. Another one is life sciences. I mean, we've been talking for a decade about life sciences. Why is it that in Massachusetts, just 50 miles away, you have a thriving life sciences community, and yet there's a big argument that they could come here and access all these great universities we have and talent we have and take advantage of Rhode Island. And so we've got to figure that out. And and I think the best way to make sure that all of us can continue to grow and our kids can be here and build great futures is to be a place where you could, you know, think about growing in your career. I know I was super lucky when I came to back to Rhode Island in the early 90s and I started working at CVS. Um, you know, this is a company that started was started by two brothers in the 1960s and it's become a Fortune 10 company. So I want to figure out what are the next versions of that? How do we help them grow and thrive? And there's so many great things happening in the entrepreneurial sector in Rhode Island. And how do we shine a light on that and help them all prosper? You mentioned the PPP loan taxation. Of course, that's just businesses who earned more than $250,000 in that, that particular year. So that raises a question, I suppose, about just broad tax policy. Obviously, this isn't directly under your purview, but your worldview, so to speak. There are people who are, uh, you know, one of your opponents, Matt Brown, would argue that we should have an extremely, relatively extremely high uh, personal income tax, whereas there are others who argue that a lower tax rate across the board stimulates more economy. It attracts wealth, so to speak, here in Rhode Island. Where do you sit just broadly? If you, I know it's tough to, you know, on the ideological spectrum, pin yourself down, but uh, how do you see yourself fitting into that equation, weighing the, the more progressive view of taxation versus the more conservative? Yeah, look, I, I think that uh, this is where, you know, I do have experience managing billions of dollars and I had to set a budget every year for my company. I ran an $80 billion business. I had 200,000 people working for me. And I think that one of the things that I hear a lot from Rhode Islanders is concerns about affordability and people feeling like they're being priced out of the state. So 
The first thing I'd be focused on from a tax policy perspective is how could we make Rhode Island more affordable for everyone? And uh, I am very open to looking at tax policy as a component of that uh, because I, I don't want people to feel priced out of this state. So that's one element. Uh, and I also think that we should be a place that is attracting uh, more talent, more businesses, and, and especially in a time where our education still system still needs to get up to be competitive with the rest of New England states. You know, despite the fact that we um, uh, spend a fair amount of money, we're not getting those results. And so I think when you have a system where the education sector is not thriving the way it needs to be, we've got to make sure that we're attractive and still attracting companies. So I would be resistant to adding a bigger tax burden. We also have a over $600 million surplus at the moment. Uh, from the last couple of years. At the same time, we're getting billions of dollars coming in from the federal government. So I think the most important thing the next governor can do is make sure that we're using those billions of dollars wisely and, and ultimately making sure that it gets to the people who need it. And that when we think a decade from now, we could say, gosh, aren't we proud of the work that we did to make sure that we were investing all that money in setting ourselves up for a great future? Speaking of, I guess, speaking to education right now, there's no question that here in Providence and even across the state as a whole, when you even look at some of the districts like Barrington or East Greenwich relative to just north of the border in Massachusetts, there's no question that that education is not in the great place that it ought to be here in the state. Um, I guess, what are some of the major tenants that you would try to uh, implement in terms of, of addressing that? Would you keep Commissioner Infante green? And we've also seen, look, there's the Parents United or whatever they are, these, you know, the the people who are completely against masking or any kind of mandates or what they believe is CRT or certain books that talk about gender fluidity, this whole world that's out there. What's your message to them as far as what you would like to see as governor in terms of broadly speaking, education in terms of academics and education in terms of parental access? and education in terms of life experiences, such as gender fluidity and so on and so forth. Yeah, well, there's a lot in that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so it, but it's a really important question because, you know, I talk to parents and, and teachers and kids all the time. I'm, I'm the granddaughter of a uh, public school teacher. My grandfather taught at classical high school and was one of the first elected school committee officials. I've got two sisters who are teachers, so I care a lot about this. And I would say that, um, you know, look, especially in the last couple of years, teachers have never worked harder and we have put more on them in terms of dealing, not just with teaching over Zoom and masking, but also all the mental health issues that they're dealing with. And even now that they're back in the classroom, a lot of what I hear about is many more behavioral issues that they're having to deal with, with kids while they're keeping their class on track. So I, 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 I celebrate the teachers and what they have done. And I want to make sure that teachers in this state uh, know that I would have their back and I want to empower them to be making sure that they can create great classrooms for their kids. Uh, all of that being said, I mentioned before the low scores in our states and you compare us just to Massachusetts um, and the rest of New England and we're behind. So I think that in particular in the younger grades, it's very important that um, 
we, we figure out how to get this question of COVID learning loss back on track. And, and we do know our kids have taken a step backwards. So what I would be doing is I would be using a significant portion of the ARPA dollars on COVID learning loss. And um, specifically, and I'll be putting some policy recommendations out in the next week or two, but I'd be, I'm going to be looking at before and after school, making sure that summer programs are available to everyone making sure that obviously if the federal government doesn't get its act together, which I hope they do on Build Back Better, that universal pre-K is something we could fund. It's a it's a very expensive proposition. A lot of politicians talk about it, but to actually fund it, I think is very different. And so I'll, I'll be uh, looking at that and really a very comprehensive program to be investing in our kids and making sure that, for example, in the younger grades, we have more teacher aides in our classrooms. So that allows those teachers to, um, to be able to uh, support what they're doing. But listen, I, I think that we've got to make sure that the kids have the support they need and the teachers have the support they need just given the mental health issues. And, um, and I'm sorry that uh, the world has gotten such that, you know, we're, we're having so many of these sort of complicated political conversations about school because school shouldn't be that complicated. I think in general, um, you know, I was very active in my kids' education and parents want to be, and we've got to give them the ability to stay connected, but also um, teach our kids, you know, the power of um, critical thinking and, and all the things that, you know, we want them to be good thinkers and, and, and learn how to read critically and think critically. And that's part of being a great citizen for the future is you know how to read any text from a very basic level, but also that you're prepared to understand different concepts and push back on them. So we're living in a complicated world. Uh, one of the things about me is that I'm not a politician. I don't understand all those elements of you know, uh, the, the politics of it. But I care very much about this as from a perspective of being a parent um, who's who knows the power of a really good education because it changed my life. For breaking news and daily digital content, be sure to follow me on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, even LinkedIn. Just search for me, Bill Bartholomew. Back to B-Town. A specific issue that's played out over the last several years, and it's also been, it's actually playing out right now. There's going to be a rally today in Providence regarding this. What do you think about school resource officers? Should they be out of, uh, of, of schools? And you look at Providence where there's the state control, obviously, you know, there, there are conflicting polls, but there are polls that show that a significant, overwhelming amount of parents and, and students want school resource officers out of buildings. Would right. you support the removal of school resource officers from, from schools statewide? Yeah, I think that this is where families really are concerned. Uh, they're concerned uh, because um, uh, uh, they're dealing with a lot of mental health issues. And the question is, are the school resource officers the best way to solve some of those problems? So I would be very open to um, listening more to what the families have to say and, uh, you know, schools, schools should be communities where our families feel very connected. I'd, in fact, be bringing more services to our schools. So, for example, I think schools could be places where we all get more access to healthcare resources, 
to learning about things in the community. I talked to faith leaders and community leaders all across this state who very much believe that one of the opportunities we have is to make sure that schools could be hubs for more than just our kids to go for a few hours a day, but for more services that families could access. And so I think part of that is creating an environment where we feel welcomed. And so I think that means we should revisit. I don't know all the answers around what it should be. And I think that it should come from a place of saying, what are the services that families need locally to make sure that their kids feel really safe, but maybe that we could do even more at a local level to service the community. Bridging sort of uh, education and healthcare today, students in some districts are back in school wearing masks, Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Do you support the policies that have been put forth by Governor McKee with respect to um, masking being reverted to a local control district by district? Where do you stand in general on the the management of COVID-19 as of right now? Not necessarily looking in the rear view and uh, in December of 2021, I would have done this or that. But today, are you satisfied with where things stand and particularly inside schools? Right. Well, first, I would say we're all so sick of masks. You know, this was um, a a very long period of time. And it's a lot to be teaching with a mask all day and and our kids, you know, dealing with masks. But that being said, um, I want to make sure that um, we're not moving too fast. So I, I think in general, the idea of lifting mask mandates Uh, was probably a little too early, but giving it back to local control makes sense to me. And I think we have to make sure that our teachers and kids are safe. And and so we've got to be looking at the local transmission rates. And mostly, I think right now, being prepared because the curve seems to be coming down really fast. So I think the thing we just got to be ready for is, you know, God forbid if it comes up again, that we're prepared. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. I think if I have a criticism of the governor in the last year, um, I think he was behind in understanding the data. And I think he didn't act with enough decisiveness and clarity for people. Uh, Hope is not a strategy. You know, you can't hope it goes away. You gotta be ready for it. And so we need to make sure that schools have access to testing and the supplies they need if and when this thing comes back. And on that same note, looking forward now in terms of just, you know, like you said, people are sick of COVID. There's no question about it. At the same time, it is still out there and there's a chance that it could move forward. Public health as a whole, we saw a huge void in terms of brick and mortar facilities in certain communities, in terms of access to transportation, translation for testing, for vaccination, whatever it may be. There are major barriers in our healthcare system, boots on the ground level. Uh, How do you address that? It's so complex, but at the same time, it's so obvious. Yeah, no, it is. And it's, and you know, and Rhode Islanders should feel really proud of what they did around, for example, COVID vaccination rates. So, you know, we're one of the highest in the nation. And I I think that this is um, a sense that, you know, we, we have each other's backs. Of course, there's always the noise of the people who are holding out, but let's not forget how well we did. At the same time, you're absolutely right. COVID exposed some serious inequities in our state. And, and when you look at healthcare in particular, well before COVID happened, uh, black and brown people were not getting the kinds of 
access to healthcare that they should be. And we know that um, that starts with, you know, good housing, safe communities, healthy food. I mean, there's so many things that go into good healthcare, but there's also historical issues around uh, vaccination that we need to deal with. And so I've talked to uh, faith leaders in particular in um, black and brown communities to say, what more do we need to do? And I think that that healthcare is at the end of the day about trust and local resources. And so one of the things that I uh, would be very focused on is how do we get more, more healthcare happening in the local communities? How do we leverage pastors and faith leaders to help to continue to get their members vaccinated? Um, what more can we do? For example, uh, you just look at, um, I mean, I'm going to include housing in this because I think it's connected to healthcare. But mm -hmm. for example, we got $200 million from the federal government uh, a, a year ago to help on evictions. We've only spent half of that. Again, I talk to faith leaders and they say, the people I'm serving don't even know how to access those programs. Um, you look at SNAP benefits. We're one of the only states in the country where our SNAP benefit usage is down in COVID because the buildings were closed and the call lines take 90 minutes. So while the rest of the country was going up, we were down. So what I'm saying is I see massive um, ineffectiveness in leadership happening in our state. And this is where I think I could make a difference. We also really need to make sure that we've got the right staffing and support in our healthcare system. We need to have healthcare workers who reflect the community, can speak the language, and we're incenting them. But one very concrete example of something that I proposed is uh, the Rhode Island, I would like the Rhode Island Promise Program to be extended to nursing so that if you were in a Rhode Island school for nursing for four years and you committed to working as a nurse in state for four years after graduation, we would waive your uh, cost of schooling. I think this would be a great way to attract more people to uh, a fantastic profession with real career progression, but make sure we keep those people here and, and we can help solve some of the staffing shortages that, again, COVID has exposed and making sure uh, that they're in all parts of the community serving people as they should be. Last question. There's so much we could get to here. I know good thing it's it's actually February. I was like, good thing it's March. It's, we're still in February, but um, what's, you know, not necessarily the candidates as a whole, but just focusing on, on Governor McKee, who has now been in office for, I guess, a year-ish, we'll call it. Yeah. What's one thing about Governor McKee that you think he's done a great job on? You mentioned a lack of decisiveness. I guess, what's the biggest difference between you and him um, in this race, but is there anything you look at and you go, you know what, that's a great model for, for how I would like to roll things out. No, I, I, honestly, I think the best I could say about the governor is he seems like a really nice man. And I think that he cares a lot. I just think he's in way over his head. And I think that, um, he's letting people down. He's letting people down because there are services that we should be providing every day across the state that we're not. We've got a brain drain going on at the top of this uh, state where uh, many great people and positions have left. There are too many open positions, interim positions. And so I think part of what goes into being a great leader, and this is something I learned in my 30-year career and, and running such a big organization, is you have to have the best talent at the top. 
You need to hold people accountable for the results you expect. And you need to keep working. I mean, look at all the places today that are not functioning for people. I think it goes back to having people in those seats who know what they're doing and holding them accountable. And the thing that excites me about being governor is that I want to hold myself accountable. This is what Rhode Islanders expect. I don't want to be another politician who just knows how to talk a big game. I think Rhode Islanders could expect me to be very transparent, whether it's about people in those roles or the specific metrics of delivery that we've got to uh, have for people or making sure that the billions of dollars that are coming in from the federal government really get spent for the people of Rhode Island. And I think I could make a big difference versus what we have today. That's a very sharp criticism that he's in over his head. It almost suggests that you believe there's a level of incompetence there in terms of the incumbent governor you're prepared to go forth with this campaign to say, hey, look, we have essentially a governor who, as you said, is in over his head, who can't do the job properly. So I'm going to step in to do the job. Am I hearing that as as a proper framing of of your positioning? It's not just we disagree on a particular policy. It's that you fundamentally believe that the governor doesn't have the uh, makeup to do this role. I don't believe he has the experience to manage this level of complexity. And I think, I think at the end of the day, what Rhode Islanders want and need and expect is a governor who will get things done and make things work for them. And uh, I, I'm not a politician. I don't know, you know all the ins and outs of, of the political side of it, but I know how to get things done. And so I, I think when you look around the state today, things are not as good as they should be. And I hear this every day from Rhode Islanders. So I think that for the people who expect more, uh, they'll look at someone like me and say, huh, she may not have been a politician her whole life, but she could maybe really deliver for us. And that's what I'd love to be able to do for the people of Rhode Island. Rhode Island's podcast of record, B-Town.